We are heading to Ephesians chapter number 2 this morning. We're going to look at some really familiar verses, verses 1 through 10. Every time I have the opportunity to preach, uh, it's always um, something that I am praying about and thinking about what exactly I want to be able to uh, preach on. Um, I had decided a while ago that I thought I would make my way through Colossians, um, but now that Scott Bucher is doing that in Sunday school class, I think I'm going to abandon that. Um, he's going to do a, a better and more thorough job than I would anyway, and I really want to encourage you. If you are not a part of our uh, 9 o'clock hour, um, I just want you to know, in a, in a loving and gracious way, uh, you're missing it. Um, man, uh, Scott Bucher's teaching in Colossians has been great. I've listened to it online. You can, you can do that. Um, his teaching is online, but it's just so much better to be there in person. Um, we've got a marriage class going on, the kids um, all the way um, through high school, so not really kids, but from our youngest all the way up through our high schoolers are also having um, 9 o'clock class um, time and, and being equipped and being taught, so it's a fantastic time. So I'm excited that um, Scott is doing Colossians, and I'm not upset at him at all is what I'm saying. Um, but it left me saying, um, what, what am I going to do? And um, it occurred to me that um, despite my role within children's ministry, um, I have not spent a lot of my preaching opportunities um, talking about parenting and the family. Um, and so uh, what I want to do today, I realize that not all, not all of you are parents who are here. Um, and so I, I want to preach a message that will be um, broadly applicable for everyone. And yet today, if you'll allow me, I do want to make a specific and even more extended application than normal uh, to children and families. So uh, maybe you are a parent, uh, and so I think you're going to want to hear this message from Ephesians 2. Maybe you're someone who's involved in our children's ministry. Um, what we're going to preach on this morning is even at the heart of what we're doing in our children's ministry. And uh, I don't know how many of us are gathered here um, this morning, but... Um, statistically, you are very likely to be involved in some way in our children's ministry. I I think we have over 100 people every month um, serving in our children's ministry, so that's probably at least a third of you who are um, here today. Um, And if you aren't in children's ministry, you're not a parent, you probably know a parent somewhere, um, and you probably know a child uh, somewhere, um, whether um, this is something that helps you for the future Um, I I think even making a specific application to children can be beneficial to everyone. But I want to start with just the the big picture uh, that the gospel glorifies God like nothing else. Right? And we're going to move from that, like I said, to make specific applications to, to parents and children. But this is a message that all of us ought to be able uh, to resonate in our hearts, that the gospel glorifies God like nothing else. And we're going to see that from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Um, nothing, I'm convinced of this, nothing makes God look as good as God is outside of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ the message that he, he came and he lived a perfect life. And then he died a sacrificial death. And then he was raised victoriously from the dead. That message brings glory to God like almost nothing else. It, it showcases his wisdom. Uh, it showcases his love. Uh, it showcases his grace. It, it showcases his compassion. It shows us his judgment. It shows us his perspective of sin. It gives us a hope for the future. The good news of Jesus Christ brings glory to God like nothing else does. And when I say it, it glorifies God like nothing else, we don't mean, when we say the gospel glorifies God, we don't mean that, that it somehow adds something to God that God doesn't have, as if God was missing some glory and therefore he needs to be glorified. He needs to get some extra glory from us, right? When we say glorified, that's, that's not what we mean. All right. Um, if I were to glorify 
my wife's baking, which I am happy to do. All right? I would glorify my wife's baking um, by talking about it. Um, and I would tell you about um, how excited I am that now we're kind of heading into this October, November time because she has the seasonal dessert she makes called pumpkin roll. And my wife's pumpkin roll is, it's the best thing going on in October, right? So uh, it's a loaf of pumpkin bread that's wrapped around a cream cheese um, middle. And it's got um, like this white baking sugar or something um, sprinkled on the top of it. Um, It's fantastic. And it usually only comes out in the fall. So I'm really excited about that. Um, She makes this trifle that is uh, layer after layer of, of brownie and then chocolate um, and then um, whipped topping, and then more chocolate, and then more brownie. Um, goodness. Uh, and, it, and it's one of these desserts is like this tall, right? When I glorify my wife's cooking, I talk about it, and I tell you, you have to have some, all right? Find a, an excuse to invite yourself over to my house, or go to an event that you know she's making something for, and you want her dessert. Because when I glorify my wife's dessert, I tell you, it's the best thing going. It's amazing. Right? I describe it. Um, I, I can try to tell you about, um, man, how it tastes and how I wonder how I'm not 400 pounds. And I, I want to, like, my wife's cooking is amazing and her baking is, it's incredible. But I don't make my wife's cooking good by glorifying it, right? Uh, truth to be told, I have absolutely nothing to do with her cooking, right? Um, but I don't make her cooking good by talking about it. I'm just reveling in it. I'm just telling you that it's good. I, I want to try to make it look and sound good. And so when we talk about glorifying God, that's what we're talking about. We're, trying, we're talking about making God look and sound good, right? It's, it's not that he isn't by himself. It's just that from our perspective, we need to be reminded of how good and how wonderful he is. He is fully glorious, But when we glorify him, we say that he's wonderful. We remind ourselves of all the reasons that he's wonderful. That's us glorifying God, right? What I'm saying today is that the gospel glorifies God like nothing else does. And we see in Ephesians 2, we're going to look at four glories of God that are revealed most clearly by the gospel. We're going to read this passage in just a second. But assuming you, you know some of this passage, you know this passage hangs Um, On this one thought, you were dead, but God made you alive. Okay? So that's where we're looking at this morning. You were dead, but God made you alive. And in that process of making you alive, God brings more glory to himself than in any other way. Let's read together Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This passage is a super familiar passage Um, to many of us who um, are committed to the gospel, and maybe you've been reading your Bible for some time and and you're familiar with this passage. 
Um, the, these words, by grace you've been saved through faith, um, echo both in my own life and in many of yours who, who came to this wonderful realization that you are saved not by any amount of works of your own and not by, not by your own self-effort, but actually the only way that any of us are ever saved before a holy God is through his grace. The grace and the faith that he gives us, not as a result of our works so that none of us can boast. What Paul is doing as he moves into chapter 2 of, of Ephesians is he's, he's bringing the gospel, the good news that we were dead, but God made us alive. He's bringing it to bear on the Ephesians after having started Ephesians 1, reminding them of the glory of their salvation. Ephesians 1 has already um, reminded them of these glorious gospel truths, like, like the fact that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. The fact that, that we have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that, that in love he predestined us for adoption. The fact that we have redemption in him. And all throughout chapter 1, Paul kept repeating this phrase. And maybe you even know what it is. You know what the phrase that he keeps saying in Ephesians 1 is? To the praise of his glory. Or to the praise of his grace. Chapter 1 has been a focus on God's saving work to the praise of his glory. And and Ephesians 2 is just continuing um, that praise of his glorious grace. And, and what Paul's going to do in these verses in front of us, he's going to tell us that we were dead, but God made us alive. But he's going to show us the glory of God in that gospel truth, that we were dead and we've come to life. Let's look at the first one. The first one is that God's love prompted him to take you from death to life. Okay? This is a glory of God that God loves. We talk about the glories of God Uh, If you want to talk about my wife's baking, I want to talk about things like chocolate and pumpkin roll. If you want to talk about something that is great about God, you've got to know that God loves. And he loves in such a way that that he would take you from death to life. Because it says in verse number one that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay, He says it in the past because he's writing to people that have already responded to the gospel. But he's reminding them of their past. Now, sometimes we don't like to think about our past. But, but Paul wants them to remember that this is who you were before Christ came. Be, before God came into your life. What you were was dead. Okay, Paul is not exaggerating the case when he says that you were dead. Right? This is not some kind of um, hyperbole. You say... I mean, we, we weren't, I was, I was perfectly alive. I was walking around. No, spiritually speaking, you were dead. Okay? And we have, to, we have to own up to the fullness of this word, we were dead in the trespasses and sins. All right? Because it doesn't say um, you were mostly dead. Okay? That's the princess bride, which is a whole other story. Right? Um, there's a difference between mostly dead and all the way dead in the princess bride, this, this movie that maybe you've seen. Right? Um, the Bible doesn't give us that distinction in this verse. Right? It doesn't say, well, you were pretty much dead, but good news, you still had this like, spark of goodness somewhere inside of you, and you just needed a little bit more of help, and you're, you're mostly a nice person. Therefore, um, you can respond to God. Right? What this passage paints for us and what the Bible paints for us is a much more sobering picture. Because the description of you and the description of me before Christ, when it comes to spiritual um, response to God, is death. Okay? It's, it's dead. Unable to respond. Incapable of any kind of action. Dead. And I think that, that this word dead, if you look it up in the original Greek, you know what it means? It, it means dead. All right? So there's no trick here. Right? Dead means dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
unable to respond to God, unwilling to respond to God. Even if you wanted to respond to God, you still wouldn't be able to because you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's the true state of humanity apart from Christ, is completely unable to respond to God, dead. Right? So I know sometimes we use these illustrations like um, being saved is like you're drowning out in the ocean and someone throws you a life preserver and you reach out and you grab it and you're saved, right? Maybe, maybe you've heard an illustration like that. Um, maybe, maybe you've used it. Um, but I, I don't think that's probably the most biblically accurate illustration, right? What's a more accurate biblical illustration than you were drowning and you said, oh, I need help. And someone threw you, said, Jesus, help me. And he threw you a life preserver and you grabbed it, right? A more biblical illustration is that you had sunk down to the bottom of the ocean and you, you had died. And you're on the bottom of the, you're on the ocean floor and you're, it's over. You're dead. And Jesus comes to you in your deadness. He doesn't throw you a life jacket. He comes to you personally and he brings you back to life and he brings you back to the surface, Right? We like to think of ourselves as we were, we were struggling to keep our heads up above water and, and we were trying so hard and we reached out for God's life preserver. I'm sorry, but that's not what this passage says and that's not what the rest of our Bibles say. We were dead. So you weren't reaching out for God, no matter how much it felt like you. you maybe you think, well, but I, but I did reach out to God only because God was the one giving you life, which we'll get to in just a second. But the reality is we were dead in the trespasses and sins. It says in which we once walked. We, walked. we were living in this deadness. What did that look like? Well, we were following the course of this world. We were going along with what everyone else is going along with in the world. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Right? The, the situation was you were dead and you were following Satan. Right? So this is not a super pretty picture of, of you and of me. Right? I'm spiritually dead, I'm living in disobedience, and I'm following Satan. Not things that we would like to um, characterize ourselves as, right? But we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And and we were sharing that with everyone else, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We, We were doing what we felt like doing. That was us before Christ. What you felt like doing strongly, you did it. The passions of our flesh. It says, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So if your body wanted it, you did it. If your mind told you this is the way I want to go, you went after it. That was us, dead. And what that meant is that we were, by nature, children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Okay? Um, when, when you think about children, uh, we, even, we got to have parent dedication this morning, which is always a sweet time. And we look at these cute little kids and... And there's something about children, like we like babies, and, and we like, like there's something sweet and precious about children. And when all the kids go running up the aisle, you're also very kind that, to not complain about being run over or anything else. Because they're kids, and, and we like kids, and we like the energy of kids, and we like the life of kids, and they make us happy, and we like being around them. And um, children are great. Um, only the thing is, what this describes us of is that we were children of wrath. So the family that we belonged to was the family of of wrath. By nature, we were children of wrath. This is you before Christ, right? What the family you belong to, by your very nature, you deserved God's wrath, okay? Now, that's a, this is a really sobering and serious condition because uh, you didn't have to do anything other than be human in order for you to deserve God's wrath. You understand that? By nature, right? Like what you were born with, the nature you were born with, you were born guilty and sinful before God. You didn't even have to do a single sin 
in order for you to stand guilty before God. Because by your very nature, by the fact that you have a human nature, thanks to Adam and Eve and the sin that they passed down to all of us who are human, we are by nature children of wrath. This is a sobering and serious condition that is mankind-wide. All right? It says like the rest of mankind. This is the state of everybody. So you can look around this room, and when you um, go out throughout your week and you look around, you can, you can look at all the people around you, and you can know that at least one thing is true about every person you look at. There is at least one universal truth. Every single person you see is or was dead in their sins. Every single person you see was by nature a child of wrath. Every single person, so that's everyone in this room and that's everyone in this, in this world, we were characterized as spiritually dead and deserving God's wrath. That's, that's all of us, okay? Now, that's really dark and discouraging news this morning, except the glory of God is revealed in the gospel, Right? Because what happened to change that situation for you and for me is in verse number four, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive. How did you get from death to life this morning? You got there because God's love prompted him to take you from death to life. And in that love, we see the glory of God on display because God poured out his love on you that even though you were a sinner and opposed to him and, and hating him and hostile to him, yet because of his love, he made you alive. That's why the gospel glorifies God like almost nothing else can. God's great love prompted him to take you from death to life. Have you ever been around a dead person, it's not an experience we, we have very often, right? Um, it's very rare that we're ever around someone who is dead. Um, but the, the, the biological realities of death that we like to hide ourselves from and we don't like to talk about death or look at death and we have, we have funeral homes that make sure that everything looks as good as possible when it comes to death. We want to sanitize death in our culture. Um, being around a dead person uh, is a really um, upsetting and even a biologically crazy um, reality, right? Because what happens to a dead body is immediate decomposition and bad things start happening right away, right? Um, now, I want you to think about that in comparison to us being dead in our sins. Have you ever considered how ugly it is to be around sinners? Have you ever made that comparison? Just like a dead body is um, a really rough thing to be around, Think about what it's like to be around sinners. What in the world would compel God to ever give life to miserable wretches like us? Have, have you thought about how ugly it is to be a sinner? Have you, ever, have you ever thought, whether it's about yourself or sin you saw in others, have you ever thought about the ugliness of the moment that, that you give way to your temper and, and, and you yell something hateful and mean to a family member? Have, have you realized the depth of the ugliness that there is in that moment? Right? Um, have you considered the, the ugliness of sin uh, when, when you hear stories of a husband uh, who has been unfaithful to his wife and he has broken his covenant promises? There is an ugliness there. There is a pain there. There is a brokenness that is there. Have you thought about how ugly sin is? How, how ugly it is to be around sinners? Because if you stop and think about that, you start to wonder how in the world could it be that God would be willing to love us? You see, because God is perfect and holy, and, and, 
And yet he's willing to give love to us who are such miserable sinners. It's an amazing thing. And, and we would see God's love as so much more glorious if we realized what bad shape we were really in. And how ugly it is to be around sin and sinners. And yet God wasn't just around sin and sinners. He came on purpose to live with us and then to die for us, and then to rise again. And what caused him to do it, what prompted him to do it, is because of the great love with which he loved us. You will, you will consider how great God's love is when you consider how great your sin is. But God is glorious in love. And we see that because he took us from death to life. This is the message that is in so many other passages of our Bible, like 1 John 4, 8 to 10, that tells us that anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. You want to know how God is love? You want to see that practically? And this love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. So into the mess, into the sin, uh, into this world, his son came so that we might live through him. Do you see it? There it is again. He came so that we can have life. This is the kind of love that God has. God has a life-giving love for you. God is glorious in this love, and you can see it in the gospel. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is love, and you can see it in the gospel. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's true that one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though maybe for a good person someone would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the love of God, and it is a glorious, wonderful love. Nothing can separate us from this love. In all the things in our lives, we are now more than conquerors through him who loves us. Because in love, chapter 1 told us, he predestined us for adoption as sons. And greater love has no one than this than a man would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. God loved the world. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Listen, God's love is glorious. If you want to know how wonderful God's love is, then look at the gospel where you see that there were dead sinners And Jesus came to give them life, and you will see love on display. So God's love prompted him to take us from death to life. And that is a glory of God revealed most clearly in the gospel. But but secondly, God's power enabled him to take us from death to life. Have you thought about this in the gospel? Have you thought about the kind of power it takes to take somebody who was dead and then give them life? Because that's not a power we have physically. And yet it's also not a power that we have spiritually speaking, because look, look what God did. Because of his great love, even when we were dead in our trespasses, verse number five, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It takes an incredible amount of power to take someone from death to life. And yet, that's the kind of power that God has. That's why Paul would say in Romans 1.16 that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the what? It is the power of God to salvation. If you want to know how powerful God is, then look at the gospel. You see, God's glorious character and his power is seen most clearly in the gospel. He has love, but he also has unlimited power. God is more powerful than our worst enemies, sin and Satan and death. God is more powerful than our our sinfulness. 
There is, there is always a point when our power comes to an end. Uh, you know that, right? There, there is always, at some point, some of us are stronger than others, but there is always a point in which your power comes to an end. Not so for God. There is no end to his power. Um, I saw a really great story um, a couple weeks ago um, of these two um, brothers from Great Britain who were running a triathlon. Maybe some of you ha- have seen this. Um, there were these two brothers running a triathlon, and um, they're both professional runners. And um, one of the brothers, Johnny, was out in front. He, he came around the corner, and the finish line was, like, in sight. Right? Now, when I think about someone who's doing triathlons, um, I think of somebody who no doubt has significantly more power than I do, right? Um, the reason I will never be a good triathlete is that I would just die in the swimming part, right? So I would never make it past the, like, I'd, I'd get to the swimming and then it's over. Like, my race is done. They're pulling me out with that rescue boat that they have, right? Um, these triathletes have an incredible amount of power. They're swimming. They're biking. They're running. Um, this guy, he trains his whole life for this, right? More physically fit than I will ever hope to be. Um, and, and yet... He gets to the end. The finish line is in sight, and, and the, everyone sees it, and the announcer sees it. And this guy, like, his eyes glaze over, and he begins to stagger, and he, he looks like he's on the verge of death. He no, no longer looks like a, an elite athlete. He looks like he's just going to collapse, and his life is over. He's, he's bobbing all over the place. He almost runs into the stands, and the announcers are saying, he is in such trouble right now. He cannot even see the, the line. His body is just so overcome with the exertion. He's completely run out of power right? And even an elite athlete like that runs out of power. Um, the really sweet thing about that story is that along comes brother Alistair behind Johnny. He grabs his brother, who is basically almost collapsed. Alistair picks him up, and he begins to drag him towards the finish line, and the announcers are going crazy. We don't even know if he's allowed to do this. Is this even, is this permissible? And they say, well, as long as it's not a spectator, as long as it's another participant, he's actually allowed. And, and the announcers are going crazy by now. Brother Alistair is carrying Johnny to the finish line. He's going to finish this race. Meanwhile, the guy that was with him, they were in like first, second, and third. The third place guy is just blowing past him. You know, he's, he's winning this race. Alistair doesn't care. He's getting his brother across the finish line. He's literally carrying his brother who can barely stand. He gets to the finish line, and then um, Alistair gets behind his brother, and he just pushes him because he wants him to come um, in place in front of him. He pushes his brother across the finish line. His brother goes across the finish line. Boom, falls on his face, right? Um, so you have these brothers that have this, this, uh, this great love for one another, but the point is that, that even an elite athlete, he's going to run out of power at some point, right? And he does with a finish line in sight. He's done. His race would have been over without his brother, right? Uh, we all have limits to our power, but God doesn't. He's so unlimited in his power that he can bring life to those who are dead. Um, and so the gospel glorifies his power. He glorifies his power because he gives life to the dead. But, but think about all the things that God worked out in order for the gospel to be accomplished. Um, how God promised before the foundation of the world that he would provide his son, and then he made it possible. Think about the life of Jesus, how Jesus was born at just the right time, with just the right circumstances, and all the prophecies that had been promised for, for literally hundreds of years before Jesus ever came all come exactly true in Jesus because that's the kind of power that God has, that he can make all of history do his bidding. Think about the kind of power that God has as Satan thinks that he has won a victory over Jesus, and yet God is so powerful that, that all Satan could do was bruise the heel of Jesus as Jesus delivers a knockout blow to his head through dying. This is incredible power that God has. God is unlimited in his power, and you can see that in the gospel. Okay? But we not only see his unlimited power, but we can also see his amazing grace. 
Okay, these, these are glorious things about our God. Look at how grace is all through this passage. He, he already reminded us that he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He, Paul's not skimping on grace. He just keeps throwing it in here again and again and again. God's favor to us that we never deserved. By grace, we have been saved. And he saved us so that, you see that in verse 7? That should be another, um, I said in, in Sunday school this morning, anytime you see in, in order that, that ought to be a big flashing light to you as a Bible student. God's going to give you a, a purpose or a reason. So that, purpose, reason, why, why is God doing this? Why is Jesus doing that? So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Have you thought about that? What God did in the gospel has eternal ramifications. Eternally, God will be glorified for his work in the gospel. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's grace is so rich and so amazing that for all of eternity, we will be glorifying God for it. Paul wants us to be crystal clear about this when it comes to salvation. Notice in verse number 8, we cannot miss this. By grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Okay, Now, that just seems so abundantly plain to me in this passage, and yet it is so abundantly difficult for us to accept that as reality. Right? I guarantee that if you are sharing the gospel with somebody who is having a struggle with refusing to believe it, one of the reasons people refuse to believe the gospel is that they think there's got to be something I can do. Uh, this sounds too good to be true. There, what, what am I going to do in order to save myself? Surely this is not just my own doing. If you ask the normal person um, out on the street, hey, do you think you're going to go to heaven? And they said, well, I hope so. And then you ask them, why do you hope that you're going to heaven? You're probably going to hear some variation of, well, I did this, or my work that. I I hope that, you know, the times I went to church, or I read my Bible. You'll hear some variation of something that is a work, whereas Paul says that we have been saved by grace, and this is not your own doing. Right? That's why we need to embrace the illustration of the guy who's dead on the ocean floor, because we so desperately want to take the doing away from God. And we want our hand. We want our say in our salvation. I want to think that I did it. Surely it's not that bad that I was completely hopeless and helpless and dead. Because, that man, I don't want to think of myself that way. And yet that's exactly what the gospel says. Right? What we are saved through, through grace and its immeasurable riches of grace and its kindness in Christ Jesus. Because by grace we have been saved. We've been rescued through faith. And this is not your own doing. So lest you even become proud of the fact that you have faith, which is the response that God gives you in the gospel, he says you should believe. Lest you become proud of that, this passage reminds us that where did your faith even come from? It didn't come from your own doing. You, you, didn't, you didn't reach down deep and well up some faith, and that's why you're better than someone else. That's not why you're saved and other people aren't, because you were strong in your faith. Even your faith was not your own doing. Well, you say, well, then... Why did I have faith? Where did it come from if it wasn't from me? Paul's glad you asked because he says it's the gift of God. Okay? It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that, there's another one of those so that, so that no one may boast. There is not a single person in this room or in all the universe that gets to brag about their contribution to their salvation. None of us. There's not a single boastful thing that you can say about you being a Christian if you're talking in reality. 
Because it's by grace you've been saved. It's by Christ's work and not your work. And in this, God is glorified. His amazing grace that he would give us this kind of favor, that he would do it all. This is the glories of our great God, that he would love us in this incredible way to take us from death to life, that, that, that he has the power to take us from death to life, that, that he would do this willingly and that he would take the initiative. It's his grace, right? The, the final glory of God revealed most clearly in the gospel uh, is that God's plan allows us to act in our new life, right? Because notice that God has a plan all along. Verse number 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, right? Here's another reason you can't boast is that, is that we are the workmanship of God, right? The person that gets the credit uh, is not the thing that is created. It's the creator, and you've been created for good works. He's the workman. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. You, you haven't been saved just to save and then sit, right? You've been saved in order to live differently, you are actually supposed to be doing good works, right? And, and God was the one who wanted you to do these good works, and that's part of the reason he saved you. Because without him saving you, you aren't going to do the kind of good works that you would. Uh, you can't do good works apart from God's work in you, right? So what God has planned, and, and this was always um, been his plan. Notice it was which God prepared beforehand, Right? Just like your salvation, just like you were predestined before the foundation of the world, God has good works that he planned beforehand that you're supposed to be doing. And God's plan allows us to act in this new life so that we should walk in them. All right? who, gets the, who gets the glory for the way you live your life? Who gets the credit for when, uh, when you do the right thing, when, when you're kind and honest? And, and what, what about if you love your wife and wives if you submit and honor your husbands and um, what, if, what if we're faithful to tell others about Christ? And, and, and what, what if we do all these things that we know that, that the Bible commands us to do? Who gets the credit for that? And Paul's answer is the glory goes to God because even your ability to live in your new life, it comes from him. So God is glorious in the gospel. And God is glorious even in how you live out the gospel. Right? You see how nothing brings glory to God like the gospel does. The, the gospel shows you the love of God. It shows you the power of God. It shows you the grace of God. It shows you how wise his planning is like almost nothing else in the universe does. The gospel glorifies God, and it does it in a way that is unique. Now, I said, uh, and I kind of give you a warning ahead of time, that I wanted to make specific application to parents. And it's at this point that I want to do that. Okay? These are all truths that all of us um, can connect to our lives. All of us should worship a God who is loving and powerful and gracious um, and has a plan, right? There, there is application for all of us. And at the same time, we are able to look at God's word and make specific application. And so I want to do that together with you right now, um, just for the remainder of our time. I know this will be a little longer than we normally spend on application, but I want to do it um, because I want you to see how if the gospel glorifies God like nothing else does, then the gospel should be central when we think about our children, okay? So, if you'll allow me, um, our children need to know the love of God because no other love is greater. Okay? If, if God's love is seen in the gospel and, and there is no greater love than God's love, then that's what our children need to know. 
It's good for our kids to know that we love them. It's good for them to know that they have family and friends that support them. All of those things are good. It's good for kids to feel the security um, and the comfort of a home. But what our kids need even more than that is they need to know the love of God. There is no greater love. So, so parents, are you communicating the love of God to your kids? It, are, are your kids aware that God is love? Uh, is it possible that maybe uh, you have um, unintentionally been imbalanced and, and, and what you've communicated and your desire for your kids to turn from their sin, uh, all that you've communicated is that God is judge. And that's when your kids think about God because of what you have emphasized primarily, that's what they think about. They think of God as judge. It is, it is good and right for our kids to know that God is judge. I'm just asking you, have you taught your kids that God is love? Are they aware of that? Is that something that, that you communicate regularly? Our children need to know the love of God, and they can know that best in the gospel. So are you clarifying to them how God's love prompted him to do something beyond what we could ever imagine, which is lay down his life for his enemies? Is that, is that a part of your gospel testimony to your kids, is that God is love? Okay? Our kids need to know the love of God because no other love is greater. But our kids need God's power because they are dead in sin. They are dead in sin. Um, and it's at this point that I know we need, um, we need to be careful. And it's, a, it's at this point um, that I know we rub against what is the general goodness of kids. Like kids, kids are generally good when they're younger. They generally do the right thing, even though they're occasionally, you know, bad and, and all of that kind of stuff. But generally, um, it's not until kids get older that they, that they turn crazy, right? Um, so we look at kids and we go, well, they're basically nice, Right? And that's easy for that to change our opinion about them being dead in sin. Right? And we forget that when Paul said that we were dead in the trespasses and sins, that was by nature. And that applies to every single one of our children. Right? I know you've heard me say, um, whenever you came home from the hospital with that little bundle, um, you were bringing home a little bundle of pagan. Right? So um, that kid came home with you. He didn't come home loving God. He didn't come home knowing God. He didn't come, come home believing in the gospel. Um, you, didn't, you never had, I, I guarantee, I, I, I don't give very many guarantees probably, but I guarantee you that you never had to sit down and train your child how to tell a lie. I just know you didn't. I, I know you didn't have to sit down and say, um, now, now listen, Susie, this is how you speak disrespectfully to mommy when she asks you to do something. Like, you never had to do that, right? That's inborn. Right? That, that's prepackaged. Uh, that's, that's what happened when you brought them home. You brought them home dead in their sins. And so what our children need is God's power. And that's the reason that in children's ministry we're so concerned uh, about fighting, uh, just doing things like being moralistic. You, you know about moralism when we're teaching kids, right? Just trying to make our kids better morally. Um, and so then we turn Bible, um, Bible stories into like, um, just be a better kid, right? Um, so David fought Goliath. You can fight the Goliaths in your life. Be a better kid. Um, Daniel was brave. Um, he went in that lion's den. He was brave. You should be a braver kid, right? That's moralism. Hey, we want our kids to be braver. Uh, we, we want our kids to fight giants, um, you know, like the thunderstorms that are in their lives and stuff like that, um, right? And all of a sudden, we shift into moralism. We, we just want you to act a certain way, right? The 
The problem with that is not that our kids don't need to learn how to act, right? They, they do. We do need to train them on what is right behavior and what is wrong behavior. The problem when that thinking starts invading even how we teach the scriptures is, is that the scriptures tell us that our kids are they're dead in their sins. And no matter how much you tell a dead person to be nicer and to be braver and to be kinder, they're never going to get around to it, right? So you, you might be able to coax your kids for a little bit into doing the things that you want them to do, but it never means that you brought life to their hearts, that's why in children's ministry, we don't just tell stories. The stories of the Bible are not just entertainment or information. They're supposed to put God's character on display and so change hearts. Uh, that's why children's ministry here at Grace Church is not primarily about fun, even though we love to have fun. It's terrible to bore anyone with the truth. I hope you're not bored right now. But um, fun is not our operating principle or goal. Um, so we're, we're not just out to let kids have a fun time. That's not an eternal impact on kids. Right? Because kids are dead and they need to get life. So they might have a lot of fun as a dead person, but you didn't actually affect them. We need to give them life, and that life comes in the gospel. Because the problem is so much deeper than just, um, than just our kids need to behave differently. They need to act differently. No, the, the, the problem is so much deeper than that. We have all inherited sin from Adam. We are unable to save ourselves, and so we cannot just ignore the deep problem within our children. Um, I mean, I guess that's one of your reactions. You, you can ignore the problem, and we can act like it's not really that bad, and our children and our teenagers and ourselves don't actually need something so profound as giving life from the dead. Um, we can ignore the, the issue that our, that our kids sin, but it, it won't be reality. Um, have, I, have I told you guys a story about the first time I, I ever caught my son consciously sinning? Uh, have you heard that story? Well, I was studying in seminary. I, can, I tell the story because it's just so vivid in my mind. Um, I'm, I'm on the couch. I'm reading a theology book, right? Super spiritual. Uh, and I'm sure it's oozing out onto my child. And uh, Kathy's gone at a women's, a women's ministry thing at church. And uh, my son, who is six months old, my sweet son, um, all the other kids that came home from hospitals were sinners except for mine. And the um, only thing is, um, we had this plant on the floor, and, and he crawled over to the plant, and he ripped off a leaf, right? Um, and, oh, Silas, no, 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 no ripping leaves off the plant. I, I move him, I set him down, I go back to reading my book. And out of the corner of my eye, I realize that he's eyeballing me. And his little six-month-old self in crawling pose is looking over at me. And then what is he doing? And now he's looking at the plant. And he looks at me, and he looks at the plant. And he waits for a little bit, and then he takes like a couple little baby crawls. And he's eyeballing me still, and I'm still reading my book. And he starts to crawl a little faster, a little faster, and he gets over to the plant. And, and I kid you not, this is still like burned in my brain. He looks back at me now, because now I'm behind him. He looks at me over his shoulder, whoosh, grabs that leaf, right? Where did that come from? Like this is now willful, clear defiance. And I went, <gasps> I just saw my son sin. Like, I saw it happen in front of my own eyes. Like, where did this go? Oh, like, now, we can just ignore the problem. Uh, he's six months old. I'm sure he didn't know what he was doing. And yeah, you can ignore that problem. Um, you, can, you can minimize the problem of sin in our kids. Um, listen, my, I am so thankful for my parents. They, they raised us um, knowing what sin is and knowing right from wrong. They were unafraid to provide some um, the, what is it, the, uh, the rod of knowledge to the seat of education, um, that all of that happened. And then something happened when they became grandparents, right? And you grandparents out there, 
I'm looking at you, right? Um, because when we would take our kids home at Christmas break, uh, and and they would do something that was definitely disobedience, and if I was a kid, it would have earned me a whooping. We started hearing things like, oh, I'm sure they're just tired from their long trip. And I'm like, are these my parents talking? Have they been replaced by somebody else? Because what just happened was sin, right? And so we can't minimize that. Like, they're not just tired. They don't just, oh, it's an unfamiliar setting. Like, that was wrong, right? Um, Well, we can do that. We can ignore the problem. We can minimize the problem. Um, We can settle for it as long as our kids aren't, like crazy rebellious, then we're okay. But, but listen, all of that ignores what's going on at the heart of our kids, which is just like this passage says, they were dead and they need new life. And if our kids are dead and need new life, they need more than us just teaching them to be a better person, be a better boy or girl. They need even more than us just, just making them biblically literate. They, they need more than just, I, I can tell stories from the Bible. What they need is the gospel applied to their hearts so that they go from death to life so they can see the glory of God. And that's in the gospel. That's in the gospel. As you think about kids, and, and as we continue to kind of make this extended application, when you think about the glory of God in the gospel and, and the love that he has and the power that he has and, and the grace that he has and, and the plan that he has, we have to be convinced that our children need that message. They need it. As we're convinced that they need that gospel, what we need to be careful of, we need to be aware that we don't oversimplify the gospel of Christ. So can I encourage you that, whether you're in children's ministry with us, um, whether you have kids, whether you're a grandparent, whatever, we need to be careful we don't oversimplify the gospel of Christ. Because children have to understand the gospel clearly before they can be saved. Right? Um, This involves grasping concepts that are hard, like good and evil, um, like dead and alive. Um, like sin and punishment and repentance and faith. And there are all these truths that kids need to be able to understand. That doesn't mean they need to know big words for them, um, but they need to know these truths. We, we can talk to kids in terminology they can comprehend and be clear, because if we just oversimplify the gospel of Christ, um, do, do, you think that, do you think that God will save you? Yes. Oh, good, you're a Christian now. You, we've now shrunk the gospel down to like a one-word answer, and we go, great, we got a response, right? That's shrinking the gospel down. Uh, our kids need to understand the gospel, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and why that's needed because they are sinners. Okay, So we have to be careful not oversimplify the gospel. We have to be careful to not just coerce a profession from our kids. All right, um, I don't want to spook any of you parents out who have kids in our children's ministry. I just want you to know that I, th- I think with a reasonable amount of confidence that I could get your kids to believe or do anything I really wanted them to. Right? So if you want your kids to come home believing that the moon is made out of cheese, I think I could convince them of that. I, re- I really do. And, and so tomorrow you, you could have a kid that walks into your house and Pastor David said the moon's made out of cheese. Look at it. Looks like cheese to me. It's cheese, right? And all of a sudden you have a kid that, right? Because we can, we can convince a kid to do or say anything. It's really not that hard to manipulate a child. Uh, the expression taking candy from a baby is an expression for a reason, right? And it'd be so easy for us to just coerce kids to say something that is gospelly true. But we have to be so careful. We're not just coercing professions from kids. We have to be careful that we're not assuming that our kids have new life, right? Listen, parents, I know. I, I want my kids to believe the gospel. I, wanna, I, I want that to be true of them. But in that desperate wanting, we can't just assume that it's happened in their hearts and in their lives. Because what has to happen is they have to go from death to life. 
That's not something you get to assume on. Right? Do you see how Ephesians 2 has such profound implications for how we look at children, um, for how we parent them, and how we have them in children's ministry? They have to go from death to life, and that's not something I can just assume happened. We have to be, we have to be careful that we're not assuring our kids that they're saved while we're also not being a stumbling block to them um, coming to faith. Right? We ought, to be, we ought to be proclaiming the whole gospel of Christ We ought to be looking for biblical evidences of salvation. That's totally appropriate, even in kids. Kids will have kid-sized fruit, right? Don't look for adult-sized fruit in kids. Look for kid-sized fruit, right? They're going to be doing things like learning to be um, less selfish and more selfless. Um, They might might have an initial hunger for the Word of God. They're going to learn to to repent when they sin. They're going to learn to do a better and better job of honoring mom and dad and obeying them. Um, There is going to be biblical fruit um, in every person's life. That's true for all of us. So if you've gone from death to life, guess what? You're going to look different as an alive person than a dead person. Uh, That's a question for all of you this morning. If you think that you have life, where do you see that life evident? Because if you, look at, if you look at your spiritual life and you might as, it's, it's just dead and it's barren, then why do you think you've come to the gospel? You see, the gospel changes us. It takes us from death to life. And that same thing needs to be true of our kids. We need to encourage any possible sign of conversion in our kids, though. Um, I'm so glad to hear you talk about trusting in Jesus. Keep on believing in Jesus, right? Those are the kind of things you can say to encourage your kids. I'm glad you love Jesus. Mommy and Daddy love Jesus, too. Let's ask Jesus to help you love him all of your life, right? You, you, don't, you don't tell your five-year-old, you don't even know what love is. Are you kidding me? You love God. You, you haven't even figured out, you know, how to eat with a spoon. Like, no, like, uh, you, you tell your kids, I, I'm happy to hear what you're expressing. I'm glad you say you love God. I love God. Hey, we want you to love God all your life, and you encourage him. They come home from seeds or from some other setting where they hear the word and, and they say something sweet and true. Jesus died on the cross and, 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 and then he rose from the dead. I am so glad that you said that. That is absolutely true. And that's going to be true um, just like it's true when you're six. It's going to be true when you're 16. It's going to be true when you're 26. So you need to believe that today and every day. You encourage all of those signs of belief without giving some kind of false assurance because what our kids need to do is to go from death to life. Okay? Um, God's glory is seen when people go from death to life. And so ultimately, as we think about our children, have you thought about what your ultimate aim is? This will be my final application to parents. Have you thought about your ultimate aim? Because I think if you settle for anything less than the glory of God, you're aiming too low in parenting. Okay? If, if you aim for, I want kids that are mostly well-behaved, um, that make it through college and, um, you know, don't totally insult our family and then we're going to be fine. I, I want kids that have a good job and they live a happy life. Um, I, I want my kids to get married to a nice person and they have a, have a good family. Or I don't know, any of the things that, that we all legitimately probably do want for our kids. Um, if those are the goals of our parenting, we have shot so entirely too low, right? Um, Because notice even here in this passage in in Ephesians 2, uh, the reason we've been raised up and seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus is for the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to be seen for the coming ages. Parents, what you get to do is have a hand in the coming age of God receiving glory as we see how rich his grace is and you get to point your kids to that. What you're doing is nothing less than, than bringing glory to God through your parenting. That can be your aim right? 
I wish that we could save our kids. I wish I had the power to bring my own kids to salvation, but I don't. But you know what I am convinced of? I'm convinced that the gospel is powerful. I'm convinced that nothing glorifies God like the gospel. And so my, the, the best thing I can do for my kids, I, I, the best thing I can do for your kids in children's ministry, the best thing I can do is say, God is glorious. The gospel is true. This is the best way for you to see how wonderful God is, is to, is to understand what the gospel is and then to respond to it. That's the best thing I can do for you because nothing else will draw our kids to a glorious God like the gospel will. Because nothing else shows how great he is. All right? I, I, I say it's like we're a, we're a one-trick pony, right? It's all I got, right? I, I, if I have a gun, I've got only got one bullet in my gun. It's the gospel, right? That, that's it. I, I don't have anything else to offer my kids or your kids. If I want them to go from death to life, it doesn't matter how many times I drag them to a church service or how much I force them to do any number of spiritual or religious things. The only thing that will change their hearts and lives forever is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's all we got. And it is sufficient and it is powerful and it can take them from death to life because that's how God brings glory to himself. So let me end with this thought. Probably the the best way to glorify Kathy's cooking is not for me to describe it. Probably the best way to glorify her cooking is for you to taste it. Then you will see how great it is. So I want to ask every one of you this morning. I've, I've talked about God's glory in the gospel. I've said that he has love, and I've said that it's his unlimited power and his amazing grace, and he has this great plan. We've talked about the glory of God, but what I want to ask you as we finish this message is, have you experienced the gospel of God? Have you tasted for yourself how wonderful God is? Have you tasted for yourself that he loves you? Have you, have you experienced for yourself his power that has transformed you from, from death to life? Do you know that gospel in an experiential sense? Because if you haven't, I want to appeal to you right now that you should run to the grace of Christ. Run away from your own works from from your own best efforts and say, I will trust in Jesus alone to save me. He is your only hope of salvation. He's your only hope of going from death to life. So have you experienced for yourself the great gospel news about the glory of God? You can know his love and his power and his grace and his plan if you will obey the gospel, if you will believe it, if you will repent from your sin. And that same reaction of going from death to life, that can be the pursuit um, for us as parents and for us as a church when it comes to the kids in our church. What we want for them most desperately is for them to, to experience going from death to life. Not to just hear that God is glorious, not just to hear that God loves, but for them to come to personally, personally grasp the reality that God loves them and that Christ died for them. Now that is a goal worth praying for and working for, and teaching for, and preaching for, and working for day in and day out. Because we want our kids to see that God is great. And if you want our kids, whether they're your own or the kids of Grace Church, to know how great God is, then what you need to do is show them the gospel.